I saw everything everywhere all at once last night. How was it? I keep hearing it, about it. It was so good. It has, it has like a little bit of everything. It's like, it's so funny, but also very emotional and dramatic and uh, very magical. I felt like, it's like I went, went to AMC and they have like this whole thing where Nicole Kidman's like walking through the theater and talking about what it's like to be at the movies. And she's like, oh, you're is... right. That I feel. <laughs> she's I've like, it. it's, it's magical. It's a place to find love and heartbreak and experience it all over again. And like, <laughs> And and then like, but like watching everything ever or everything everywhere all at once, I was like, this is the kind of movie she was talking about. Yeah, Nicole Kidman was correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Welcome to Talking Underwater. One water, one podcast. I'm Katie Johns, managing editor of Stormwater Solutions. And I'm Bob Crossan, Senior Managing Editor for Water and Waste Digest. And in this month's episode of Talking Underwater, we will talk about Flint, a new documentary that is being released on April 29th of this month, as well as an EPA memo about accelerating nutrient pollution reductions. Finally, our interview this month is with Maria Lehman, President-Elect of the American Society of Civil Engineers and Director of U.S. Infrastructure for GHD. We talked with Maria about regulations, including the Infrastructure and Investment Jobs Act, PFAS, lead service line replacement, and more. But first, Bob, why don't you tell us about the documentary Flint? Yeah, so this documentary Flint is a about the Flint water crisis. It's been worked on over the past 10 years, like basically since the Flint crisis began. The, it is uh, by filmmaker Anthony Baxter, and uh, per, it, it, the executive producer is Alec Baldwin. And... It, uh, there were a couple things that really struck me about it, and I think that are, are interesting to say about this thing. So first of all, it isn't so much about like the actual solutions that were implemented at Flint and how that worked like with the utility and that type of thing. It's very much about the people and how the people of Flint were impacted by it and the people who came to Flint to try and help and what that meant for their community and, and whatnot. And there were a couple things on that that I wanted to touch on. First of all was, so Mark Edwards is very well known for this because he did a lot of the testing and whatnot through Virginia Tech and helped establish just how widespread the issue was in Flint, right? And he, at one point in, the, in this documentary, and it, it was within the first couple of years of the Flint water crisis, talked about how Flint was the beginning of kind of like a dark age, which he defined as people not knowing who they can trust in a society that depends on trust. And I think that that has always been the underpinning issue that has been thematic throughout all of the Flint water crisis elements is that trust has been kind of like irreparably damaged. And it became this thread throughout the entire documentary as well where it wasn't just the trust in the water system it was trust in neighbors to their neighbors it was trust in neighbor in the community members to the solutions providers it was distrust in all forms because everyone came there because everyone who came there and was trying to solve problems like you could just see as things wore on how much it was like more and more about money and monetization and profits and like using this as a launching point in some cases which was like really really kind of awful to watch uh how much 
the people were taken advantage of now and then. And you just saw like how trust would be broken even among people who at the beginning of the whole process were really great friends and and whatnot and seeing how their relationships kind of deteriorated over time because trust was just broken and, and fractured in so many ways. Um, it also reminded me of Icarus. If you've seen that documentary about doping, and where it started as a documentary about one thing, and then they found this other thing, and that became kind of the antagonist that drove the rest of the film. And that 100% happens with this too. So anyway, I, I really liked it. It is emotionally a challenging movie to watch because of the things that I've just expressed, but I do think that it's something that everyone should certainly look into and watch. If you are a water professional or in, in engineering, it really underpins how important communications are to communities and how critical trust is. Because people, we're talking 10 years later, people are still, you know, not drink trusting the water in Flint, even if it is, like, good enough for them to drink. Because even some of them don't believe it. They still don't believe it. So anyway, it was very interesting. I highly recommend it. I, I, I was lucky enough to get a, a pre-screener of it to take a, wa a watch of it ahead of the release on April 29th, but it does release on April 29th and I encourage all of you to watch it when you have the opportunity. Yeah, I also received a screener, which was great, but I have not been able to watch it yet. So I hope to get to it this week because I mean, it sounds incredibly interesting and like it was a told a story that was told very well in the documentary, so. Well, before we dive into our interview with Maria, I did want to mention that uh, the EPA recently announced a strategy and uh, memo to protect water quality by accelerating nutrient pollution reductions. In the memo, the EPA commits to a couple strategies, including fostering and deepening work with the USDA, states, tribes, territories, agriculture, industry, and the broader broader water sector. Additionally, the EPA will provide technical assistance and support science-based and data-driven strategies to reduce excess nutrients in water. Um, so we just want to share this with you. Thought it was uh, a timely piece as it came out just a couple of weeks ago, and we will, of course, continue to monitor how it how it'll impact the industry. Indeed, indeed. I think there's it's really interesting to see how active EPA has been recently, and it. Um, I know that a lot of their timelines seem really aggressive on things, especially on the regulatory front with, with PFAS and whatnot and trying to get something mm -hmm. on the books by next year. A, a lot of folks that I've spoken with are talking about how aggressive that is, but just seeing how, how quickly they're actualizing stuff like this gives me doesn't give me as much pause as I probably would have uh, previously with EPA. And truly, there's just so much happening with EPA right now. And if you want to learn more, just make sure you check in on all of our websites because we're constantly posting content that they're passing along to us and press releases about how to get funding and stuff like that. So. Absolutely. And speaking of regulations, our interview this month is all about different ones going on in the sector right now. So like I said earlier, I spoke with Maria Lehman on various regulations and their impacts on the water industry. So without further ado, here is that interview. Hello, everyone. I am here with Maria Lehman, American Society of Civil Engineers President-Elect and Director of U.S. Infrastructure for GHD. And today we are diving into the vast world of regulations, including the Infrastructure and Investment Jobs Act, some PFAS topics, and lead service line replacement and more. So, Maria, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. 
Oh, thank you, Katie, for having me on. Of course, anytime. So to get us started, let's just dive into the Infrastructure and Investment Jobs Act, you know, which is, you know, the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Can you talk about the impacts that's going to have on the water industry as a whole? Well, I think the um, IIJA really uh, based a lot of its data on um, ASCE's infrastructure report card. Uh, We worked very hard, not only in identifying the problems and obviously grading the infrastructure, but also identifying specific topic areas that really needed to be addressed. So many parts of the bill are part of public policy that ASCE has been working on for a long time and getting that data in front of uh, both the White House and Congress so that they included it. So the $55 billion in new funding for water and wastewater specifically uh, has a lot to do with things, conversations that have been had for a long time. I mean, we've been at this since 1998. And so, um, you know, someone finally listened, which is always a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. And that was what I was going to bring up is that a lot of what's covered in the IIJA is also part of the ASC report card and also looks at some similar solutions. So what effect, you know, or aid or solution do you anticipate this to have on those solutions? Do you think you'll be able to get a lot more done or what do you see going on there? Well, the, the, uh, because of the timing and, you know, it's a five-year plan, I think that's wonderful uh, because it gives us the opportunity to not just do low-hanging fruit, but really make some substantial impact in some areas that we haven't been able to before. Infrastructure, you know, you don't flip a switch and all of a sudden new infrastructure is in place. And there's really some some structural issues that have to be addressed in, in water and drinking water and clean water and storm water and wastewater are all integrated. So if you think about it, you know, the storm, the, the, the last report card's the first time that we did storm water and uh, we graded it in, uh, for the first time because we had data, we're very big on making sure that someone else can publicly go through um, the bibliography that we do and come up with the exact same answers, but it came as a D. We had 11 Ds. Uh, fortunately, we had some better grades, and so the cum came up to a C-. minus. But stormwater is highly linked to um, CSOs in cities, right? So wastewater, yeah. as well as water, drinking water. When you think about it, I mean, the statistics that we had, 6 billion gallons of treated water a day is wasted. And it's probably going to end up either in a sanitary a CSO or in a stormwater system. Um, We have to do something about that because we certainly do not have enough water to be able to waste 6 billion gallons a day of treated water. So it all is in a circle. um, And one issue really interrelates with others in ways that most people don't even think about. Yeah, absolutely. And Can you explain, you know, what some of the next steps are as it relates to, you know, utilities and then manufacturers and then engineers, you know, what are the next steps for them regarding the IIJA and when they might be getting these, this aid and and what's, and what's going to happen? Okay. Overall, uh, about two thirds of the money in the bill is going through formulaic funding programs that are there. And about a third of the money, roughly, is going to new programs, which are going to 
be either grants or loans, but they are going to be competitive in nature. Okay. So um, as far as the non-competitive, the federal government already, EPA already started putting that money into revolving loan funds in the states. Mm -hmm. And so that's already, pardon the pun, in the pipeline. (laughs) Um, But uh, as far as the competitive grants, those are worked on. And there's there's many of them. Um, If you look at utilities relative to, for example, uh, a transportation system, a highway, uh, I think USDOT has 29 new discretionary fund categories. Well, they have to write the rules for that and they have to figure out how they're going to do all that. So that's going to take a little bit more time. I think utilities overall, whether they be private or public, are also looking at what the possibilities are. What's different about this specific bill, first of all, is that it's comprehensive. So it's not the silos of funding we've seen before. So even though it reauthorized um, the Safe Drinking Water Act and it reauthorized the Clean Water Act and it reauthorized surface transportation for five years, it's all included in one bill and it really is looking at developing a systematic approach to everything, not only in how you're delivering the infrastructure, but also from a workforce development position, also from an equity and environmental justice. So things that we kind of talked about around the edges in the past, or maybe siloed into a chapter of a report, now has to be, you know, not a thread, but part of the fabric of delivering a project. Yeah, absolutely. And the other, you know, kind of two subtopics I wanted to talk about were, you know, lead service line replacements and PFAS. So can you talk about, you know, how those are being addressed and what comes next for the utilities and people that will be working on those? Sure. Um, the lead service, both of those areas are things that, that GHD does a lot of work in and has done a lot of innovative work, not just in the U.S., but around the world. But I can tell you specifically relative to, to lead service line, the problem was identified as a $60 billion problem. Um, in the United States. And IIJA offered $15 billion to solution. Uh, Roughly half of that is going to grants and half of that is going to loans through, um, you know, the revolving loan funds. There, There was discussion when they were talking about Build Back Better plan that they would put another 15 billion in. um, Where that you know, what happens with that and where that goes is, you know, anybody's guess at this point, depending on what Congress does. Uh, But there was supplemental funding in the president's uh, blueprint for the budget. So we're hoping there. But there's examples of how you do that better. Uh, GHD has worked as the engineer for the city water authority in Buffalo and Buffalo is, is uh, a very poor city per capita. And one of the things that we did is we brought our digital group on board and we actually took the uh, GIS information and layered it. So we took a look at by zip code where you have issue, you know, what um, the household income is, what is the level of education, what is the property ownership versus rental right? Mm -hmm. How much, um, you know, what people make in that zip code. Looked at all those demographics that come out of census 
and then overlay that where they know that they have lead service lines because the poorest of the neighborhoods are not going to have the ability to go after some of the discretionary money that's been there in the past. And if you want to make the biggest impact, you want to make it on the poorest community. Um, and to me, as being a mom and a grandmother, mm-hmm. um, getting rid of those lead service lines is job one. I mean, if I were to say personally, as my opinion, the most important piece of that legislation is that because lead is one of a few heavy metals that once you have it in your body, it's never leaving. And so you that child is going to have issues for the rest of their life because we haven't addressed it. It's why we were very aggressive with with lead paint mm-hmm. in houses. and We just forgot about the water. So that that's a comprehensive to look at where you attack first. But the other thing that we did is we partnered the city water board, the um, Veolia, which is the supplier and the operations and maintenance, GHD, as well as the University of Buffalo, we're actually having graduate students. We actually have loops right in the water plant that have lead pipes in them, okay? Mm-hmm. And they have other materials so that even if, if you're getting uh, a tweak in how you're treating the water based on whatever the problem of the day or the month is, they can run it through these loops inside and see what the impact is. And so it's like a living laboratory to learn from what we're doing on a daily basis. So it's kind of, I think it's a best in class example of how you really address this to be able to get the poorest neighborhoods and get the best data available. Yeah, sure. And you, you raised a, a couple of good points there where you talk about, you know, you know, for you, you were saying lead service line replacement is the number one, and there are so many things that are included in this package that it is hard to know what to prioritize first, but then on the other side of that, there's also still some areas that may not be getting the funding that they need. So, you know, what do you think are still some of the obstacles the water industry faces to get the funding or to get the regulations needed to be able to, you know, better our infrastructure? Uh I hate saying 55 billion is not a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money. Um, If you look at a plus up at that level, based on the number, the sheer number of pipes we're talking about. Okay. And again, you know, going back to um, how much infrastructure we have of one type, if you're looking at water lines, there's 2.2 million miles of underground pipes. Okay. Mm-hmm. On hazardous waste, we don't have a number that's, or on, uh, I'm sorry, on, on uh, sanitary sewer lines. We don't have as good of numbers because they're not as well documented. But, you know, you're talking millions and millions of, of miles of pipes. And if you look in old cities, there's still wooden water lines. I mean, we all know that. And so they're over 100 years old. They need to be replaced. It's not, it's usually in an area that's congested, that there's a lot of traffic. Um, it's not inexpensive. And so I think making an investment to upgrade those lines, uh, it's an expensive proposition. And, you know, there's a lot of pressure to not increase the cost of water. So thinking about how we do that in a more equitable manner, you know, maybe it's, it's similar to what the federal government does with the heat program with heating assistance, Mm -hmm. you know, that you get closer that water authorities, whether they're public or private, get closer to the real cost of what it takes to replace the infrastructure and to manage and operate and maintain the system uh, for the people that can pay for it. And the people that don't, that we find a separate way to subsidize that as opposed to subsidizing everybody. Right. 
So I think we have to look at more equitable ways to fund it that we're not um, hiding the true costs. And I think that happens a lot just because they're expensive. Sure. Yeah. And, and equity is a big thing that we've been talking about as well in regards to just the, you know, one water as a whole, we feel like recently, you know, water equity has gotten more of a heightened awareness, which is great. But again, like you're saying, there's still a long way to go to make sure that that, that, that can happen. Right. Well, and again, I think people do not think about the fact that, you know, they're going to go spend, you know, um, in a, in a store, maybe a buck. If they go to a place, a fast food joint, they're going to spend three bucks on a bottle of water that's unregulated. And they don't think twice about that. Right. Um, and when you consider it's fractions of a penny at your tap, but don't raise my water rates. It's kind of interesting. It's an interesting paradox. I think if people saw how much they spend on a gallon of water versus gallon of gas with how that's a hot topic now, I think they'd be surprised. Yeah, right. Exactly. And that's another thing too, is right. Public education on water industry as a whole is something that, you know, we've been hearing a lot about is, is becoming more necessary too. So, right. The other, um, kind of subtopic I wanted to dive into was PFAS. Can you kind of give us an overview of what's going on in regards to PFAS regulations right now? Well, I think it's it's even bigger than PFAS. It's all the emerging contaminants, right. okay? It's Things all. that we didn't know better about before and we do now. And I can tell you, for example, in our work that we're doing with the federal sector, um, the federal government, especially around like Air Force bases, are taking this very seriously and they're getting out there to do a lot of work pretty quickly. Uh, I think once you get into the state or local government type areas, um, it's not happening as quickly. I think there's going to be money in, there is money in the bill. I'm not sure exactly how it, EPA is going to manage it to have it come down to the actual uh, property owner, um, you know, whether there is a potential responsible party or not, because in a lot of cases it may not be, it may be just next to something where there was a fire and that they used foams, mm-hmm. you know, it might not necessarily be the typical industrial, you know, Superfund site that we're used to. So I think there's a lot of variation there. I do think that what's different with PFAS is first of all, um, concrete likes absorbing it. So it's not just about the soil. It's, it's about maybe the road next to it. Um, I think there's all kinds of different pathways we have to understand because of that. Uh, it also has impacts on equipment that, um, it comes in contact with. So this is going to require a pretty deep dive and it'll be interesting to see how EPA kind of holistically addresses this. I don't know that they're there yet. I think they're still trying to figure this out. Uh, But I do know from the federal government standpoint, as as far as federal facilities where they definitely had um, the need and the usage, uh, I think you're also seeing it around airports. I think airports are also getting pretty aggressive on it because again, uh, the things that you fight uh, f- when you're firefighting at an airport fire, um, you're using foams because it's there's probably fuel, there's aviation fuel there, uh, and so it's required. And so it's how all that stuff comes together. So I would say that the federal government from an Air Force and, and actually all the military units and then airports are probably a- ahead of everybody else. Um, but there's still a lot of learning to be done here. Yeah, Absolutely. And then the other thing I wanted to ask was how, 
technology advancements and sustainability are playing into all of this. Are you able to touch on that? Um, sustainability is telling you that in a perfect world, you want a circular economy. Mm -hmm. So when you're envisioning a project at day one, you should be thinking about all the costs and all the environmental impacts, even though it's not on your footprint. So the embodied carbon in the concrete that you're, you're going to use um, all the way through to demolition and life cycle costing is not something we've done in the United States very well. For the most part, at least in the past, we have not paid attention to that. And many times you do a solution that's going to cost you much more over the long run, but because that first CapEx is smaller, um, especially on the public side, there was always this drive to keep the CapEx as low as possible. We are learning from that, and that creates a better um, microcosm to be thinking about how all these things come together. So again, I mentioned before um, stormwater, a lot of the stormwater in some of the older cities is probably tied to water line breaks. <laughs> and so stormwater is integrated with that. Uh, another great example is I was asked with a couple other people um, by Senator Gillibrand's office last fall, uh, in the summer, there was two major rain events in New York City, and the subway system was right. flooding. Yeah. And the problem was, is that you got two and a half inches an hour of rainfall. And, you know, they were looking at, you know, what kind of design standards, whatever. And it's like, well, first of all, we're not designing anything for two and a half inches of rainfall. Um, so that's problem one. The next problem is, is that the subway system ties into a sewer that is run by another agency. Right. <laughs> and so how well are they maintaining and cleaning that's that probably combined sewer in some cases it's storm, but mostly combined um, to be able to make sure that that water can release and that it doesn't back up. So it becomes that agencies have to almost be forced by the rules to work together because the most cost effective solutions are going to be when they work together. Let's make sure, you know, that the, that the sewers are hogged properly, that we're getting the flow that we need to. And then we'll start thinking about things like green solutions where you're using, and again, going to the Manhattan example, that you're going to have green roofs and you're going to have rain gardens. So everything isn't peaking at the same time and you have the ability for the system to catch up to itself. So, some cities are doing that very well. I think California has a lot of, of laws in place that are really starting to think about, you know, how do we help ourselves from a natural environment standpoint? I know the core of engineers is, is starting to take that very seriously as far as their, you know, natural solutions to some of these issues. Um, so we, we have to think about this as a system. And if you look at sustainability, it's always about what the unintended consequences are, forcing yourself to look at that and design resilience in because you thought about it. Yeah, absolutely. And then, Maria, one of my final questions for you is, sure. you know, we've been talking about all these regulations, which, and, and the funding that's going to come, which will hopefully lead to more projects. And then we have, we've been talking a lot about, you know, the workforce, how there's people leaving the industry and we need people to replace those. So can you talk about how the future of the water workforce is going to play into all of this? 
Um, we've had several conversations, uh, both with our, our clients at GHD and with various roundtables about workforce development, and it's a real issue. Uh, mm-hmm. We have a number, you know, we have a lot of baby boomers that um, that are either, re- that either COVID forced them into retirement, I'm done, I'm going home, I've mm-hmm. had it, mm-hmm. or that are going to retire. And so it's it's kind of a perfect storm. Right. Because it's everything from, you know, operators and plants to um, craft labor all the way up through engineers. I can tell you on the engineering standpoint, uh, I'm, I'm actually doing the rounds now with with our various uh, student symposia around the country. And so I looked up the statistics. And if you look at the statistics, uh, the, the U.S. Bureau of Labor statistics says that the growth is going to be about 8% a year. We have a little under 310,000 civil engineers. Uh, That's 25,000 new openings a year. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the statistics of how many graduates there are at all levels, not just undergraduate, but master's plus PhDs, if you look to the uh, American Society of Engineering Education, they say 20,000 graduates. Um, Deloitte says it's 22,000. That's still three to 5,000 less people than we need. Right. And that's before IIJA hits, right? And that's yeah, before that's people start really retiring. So uh, it's going to be an issue. I think we're going to have to look much closer at how we attract people into the whole industry for whatever the position is. I think we're going to have to be much more reliant on technologists and technicians to get work done. So it'll be more about the team as opposed to a specific fragment of you know, the team that works on it and uh, come up with effective and efficient ways to get things done. I mean, the good news is, is that's, that's kind of what we do for a living is think of creative (laughs) new ways of doing things. So, (laughs) um, and it usually takes being challenged before you really think differently about what you're doing. So um, I'm very optimistic that we're going to find some great solutions. And I'd love to see IAGA be the, the moonshot of what we had in the 60s. You got tons of people in, into techn- technology because everybody was excited about us, about us going to the moon. I think if we really mm-hmm. start thinking about totally transforming our infrastructure and really taking care of the planet, which is something that very re- very much resonates with Gen Y and Zers, mm-hmm. right. um, we have great possibility to really attract a whole lot of new people and hopefully a whole lot of new women and a whole lot of people of color. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Maria, those were all of my questions for you. And I know we could talk about this stuff for hours. Is there anything <laughs> you want to add before I let you go? Uh, the, the only thing that I want to add is, and I think it, it goes back to what we talked about circular. I think what we don't do very well in this country, um, there's spots where we do, but not overall, is, is thinking about this as, as an integrated water management system. Um, you know, climate change has created bigger droughts in areas that get droughts and a lot more, you know, we laughed that the West um, is in this horrible drought situation. And, you know, I'm in the Great Lakes area and we have way too much water. And so we have to think about how you work the whole system to balance the whole system. Um, That's always, oh, that's too big. That's too hard. Um, And we haven't thought about it that way. I think our future is going to require that just because climate change is not giving us a lot of options. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great point. So anyway, thank you so much. This is, this has been fun. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time and showing all of your insight. I I really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. Yep. Have a good rest of the day. 
Yep, you too. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for the interview, Maria. It was really insightful, and I know we could have talked about it for hours upon hours. So thank you for sharing that insight, and I hope we can talk again soon. Yeah, so let's pivot more to the housekeeping to close out the episode. Starting first, we'll talk a little bit about the water quality product stuff. So uh, with the last episode, we did talk about how Lauren would be moving on to something new. So in the interim, uh, I have been taking on some things and Katie's been taking on some things for the workload there. And I was actually just at the Water Quality Association Conference and Expo in Orlando, Florida, where I met with some audience members and contributors to line up some content for the future. So please stay tuned to our channels for that. We're keeping everything flowing along. And, of course, we still have the podcast, so please check in with us then. In terms of WWD, we'll be sharing some content on our WWD Young Pros online throughout the month of May. We're going to be finally announcing all of them that month. So make sure to check in at our website, wwdmag.com slash youngpros, no spaces, no dashes, to get more information on them. We'll be, inter- we'll be sharing information on them throughout that whole month, so just check back regularly. And of course, we also have our weekly videos, which you can watch at bit.ly slash Digest. They premiere every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And the next SWS webinar series event is on April 21st, and this month's presentation is called Making Green Stormwater Infrastructure a Success in Urban and Suburban Settings. So I hope you can join us. You can register for free at bit.ly slash SWS April web. And with that, don't forget to like, subscribe, share on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, and really anywhere you can get podcasts. You can also reach us at talkingunderwater at sgcmail.com to share your thoughts. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at TUW Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. (laughs) 